let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would um, go deep in our hearts and that it would bear fruit there. I pray that it would um, serve as the tool to help us know you, uh, not just know about you, but to actually know you in a, in a personal way. And so please just have your way with us tonight and um, just accomplish the work that you want to in each of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, a book a week, give or take, and that brings us tonight to the book of Judges, which is uh, it's probably the single most fascinating book of the Bible. Um, if someone ever tells you that the Bible is boring, the polite but firm answer is, well, then you've obviously never read the book of Judges, because um, the book of Judges is anything but boring, um, particularly the last half. You know, sometimes we read the scripture and then you go back and think about what it's actually saying. You read the last four chapters of Judges and then think about what it's saying and it makes your hair stand on end. Um, so there's, there's really nothing boring about Judges. That doesn't necessarily make it um, a fun book, but it, is a, it's a, it has very exciting moments of getting to watch the Lord prove himself uh, capable. The Lord prove himself faithful, even to people who aren't. And so as a result, we get some just really fascinating stories of God working among his people. Um, judges, really since the time uh, I was probably like six years old, uh, my favorite Bible stories have been in the book of Judges. And actually, um, every once in a while, uh, I don't do it as much now because uh, we used to, Mary and I used to teach children's church every fourth Sunday, and now we switch and we do every fifth Sunday, so I don't teach as often as I used to. But it used to be, uh, for a while there, if I was teaching and I had a class of only boys, uh, I'd go to the book of Judges, because I was like, you know what? I don't think Abby or Sandy or Jamie are really going to get into Aglon or Jail and Sisera, and, um, and I just feel like this is kind of my opportunity to really share with these boys the things that they might not might not get right off the bat. So, um, so anyways, so I've, I've always loved the book of Judges in its own right. Um, but Judges, we get to see, you know, you remember, if, if you would, so last week we, we covered the book of Joshua. Joshua's really the first of the historical books, um, right? The, the first five books are sometimes called the Pentateuch, or uh, they're really, you know, the law in its summary form, the beginning of the nation of Israel, the law, all of that. Joshua, through the book of Esther, are going to be the histories. They're the narrative of Israel's history. And um, so as we're looking at the book of Judges, we've got to keep that in context, okay? So the people have now come into the land. They've conquered most of the land. Um, Joshua dies before it's all conquered. And so Judges really picks up right about there. And we see in Judges uh, just a cycle that repeats itself over and over again. And if you want to understand the key to the cycle, uh, the, most, the simplest way to do that is to go to the very last verse in the book of Judges. And um, Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the summary of the book of Judges right there. Okay, the summary of everything that you read in the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no sense of a higher level of authority. There was no king physically. There was really no king spiritually uh, for the people of Israel at that time. They were refusing to surrender to the Lord. And so we see a cycle in the book of Judges. 
We're going to see that people disobey the Lord. They're going to refuse to walk in obedience. Uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, walking in obedience, walking in victory. We're going to see that people refuse to do that. And disobedience always leads to defeat. And uh, it's just, it's a reality. If you, if you refuse to obey the Lord, you will not have victory. And so we're going to see the people walk in defeat. They're going to get defeated over and over and over again. And every time they get defeated, after a period of time, they do get desperate. They begin to cry out to the Lord, and, and, and that usually happens, but it's amazing how long some of these passages go. It'll say, you know, they were in bondage for eight years. They were in bondage for 20 years. Uh, they were, you know, it, it's all these things over, and you look at it and you think, how long can you stand in obstinate rebellion to the Lord? And the answer is, we can stand a pretty long time. We are uh, sometimes too stupid for our own good, right? And so the people uh, wind up getting defeated, and then they wind up getting desperate, and what's interesting is over and over again, in their desperation, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers them. And so we get to see the deliverance of God uh, over and over again. So that's what we're looking at. But we're looking at it in a context of a cycle. This happens um, 12 times in the book of Judges. And so oftentimes what happens, actually every time in the book of Judges, when they get to that point of desperation, they cry out to the Lord for deliverance, the Lord raises up an individual or a couple of individuals uh, as a judge. And when you think judge, don't think uh, Judge Judy or anything like that. There's no, it's not like that. It's more uh, in the sense of a person who could make a judgment, more like making a judgment call. A person who could say, hey, here's what needs to happen from a leadership standpoint. A person who could, you know, uh, sort of collect the, the authority temporarily to say, we're going we're gonna to come together we're going to do this. We're going to come together to fight against uh, the nation of Moab or the nation of Ammon. We're going to, it's a temporary position that a person would hold basically to rally the people together, okay? And, but the Lord, you know, it's an interesting principle that we're going to see um, over and over again through this book. And that is that when the Lord wants to do something, he always looks for an individual. The Lord, you know, the Lord is happy to, you know, he can work through nations and all of that. But when the Lord wants to do an amazing work, he always goes for an individual. He always is looking for somebody, right? And we'll see that, you know, really through all of Israel's history. We'll see that with David. We'll see that with David's friend Jonathan. We'll see that with Josiah. We'll see that with Hezekiah. We'll see that with Elijah and Elisha. When we get to the prophets, every time it's a prophet, right? We see Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're individuals' names, because these are people that the Lord sought out and said, I want you to carry the message I'm, I'm sending. I want you to walk in obedience to what I'm commanding. And we get the names in scripture of the people who responded. And so whenever the Lord wants to do something, because uh, he's looking for an individual. And that's important for us to keep in mind because we live in a world where there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. We live in a world that's obsessed with finding, quote, your truth. Right? Do what's right in your eyes. Be yourself, which is you know, really the most dangerous lie you can believe in. To, you should be yourself. No, you should not be yourself. I should definitely not be myself. Right? You don't want to be your authentic self. Your authentic self is creepy. Um, you need to not be your authentic self. You need to be conformed to something better. You need to be conformed to the image of God. Romans talks about you need to present yourself a living sacrifice. You need to sacrifice what you are. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Christianity is not about being ourselves. It's about letting the flesh die so that the Lord can use us. 
But in that sense, Judges is encouraging because we live in a culture that's really similar to the book of Judges and we're going to see the Lord use individuals over and over again. And the Lord is still looking to use individuals today. Right? He's still looking for that one person who says, hey God, I'm ready for whatever you want to do. And I'm, I'm ready to carry the message. I'm ready to, to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. And so in that sense, Judges really has a lot of encouragement. But Judges opens up, chapter 1, um, it's really right on the heels of the book of Joshua. And it says, now it came about after the death of Joshua, that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So after Joshua dies, we see the momentum carries on for a little bit, okay? The people, the Israelites say, all right, Joshua told us what to do. We still have some land to conquer. Hey, God, who do you want us to conquer next? How do you want us to do it? The Lord says, here's where you go. Judah says, okay. Judah and Simeon, as they were splitting up the tribes, were gonna be next door neighbors. So Judah said, hey, let's do this together, okay? And, and so they're carrying out. They're, they're walking, they're still walking in victory. We see really chapters, uh, verses one through 26, we see a list of, hey, they conquered this and this and this, and then from there they went and conquered this and this and this. But we see a turning point um, in chapter 1, verse 27. And if you're there, the first word is but. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages. And then verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Th verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Uh, verse 34, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. So, you know, we get the list of several tribes who didn't finish conquering. And then we get the end, uh, Dan actually lost ground. They're, they're losing. They're actually starting to recede the point where they had stopped they are now having to back off of. And we see this, this is really, it's sort of the, it's the foreshadowing for the rest of the book. What happens? We had a lot of momentum going forward until Joshua died and none of us made that relationship that Joshua had with the Lord our own relationship. We were riding his momentum and so he died and that momentum trickles and then it slows and then it stops and then it recedes. And so, um, so that's where we find the nation of Israel. And then chapter two, the Lord's gonna rebuke them. And it gives us, goes back and kind of just reminds us, you know, hey, Joshua died. And then the people served the Lord as long as Joshua's alive. They served the Lord while the, uh, the priests who were priests during the time of Joshua were alive. And after that, uh, chapter two, verse 10 says, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So we get a, really a, a new nation in, in a sense. A uh, new group of people, new generation rises up and they don't know the Lord. They don't know the works that the Lord did. They, don't, they didn't experience them personally and they didn't choose to experience what the Lord was doing in a personal sense. And, uh, and it's a warning for us. The book of Judges is, is, a, is a full warning for us because you know we don't, none of us saw the parting of the Red Sea. None of us were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Right? There are things that we hold on to by faith. We believe that they happened. We believe they're historically as verifiable as any other fact in history. But there are things that we still need to understand are happening today. We need to understand that the Lord wants to have a relationship with us today or else we, uh, we will be just like these people in the book of Judges. So Judges divides 
into really three parts. Chapters one and two are the first part. They're the intro, okay? Hey, started off okay, momentum slowed down, now we are losing ground. And chapter two really ends by saying Israel totally walked away from the Lord. They're serving all the, all the idols of the Canaanites, all right? And then that brings us to part two. Part two is uh, chapters three through 16, and it's gonna give us the history of the judges. And there's, uh, there's 12 judges in all, some people say there's 13, uh, depends on how you want to count them, but for practical purposes, 12 sounds better anyways, it's, it's an even number. Um, so a couple of them get more info than others, uh, and so we're not going to highlight them all, but I do want us to look at just a couple, um, really just for the sake of, uh, of just sort of understanding, A, what is the book talking about, but B, you know, where are the principles and, and the lessons that we can learn. So uh, the second judge of the nation of Israel is this guy named Ehud. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees, and the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So Israel walks in disobedience. That leads them to defeat. They are in defeat for 18 years. That's a long time to be in defeat. That's a long, you know, Israel wandered around for 40 years in the desert. That's a long time. 18 years is a long time to be in bondage, right? And we're seeing Israel in a, in a physical bondage, right? But for our own lives, we can find ourselves in spiritual bondage for a long, long time. And we can just, you know, we can hold on to our stubbornness and say, no, I'm good, I'm, I've, I've still got this. You know, it's a school of hard knocks or whatever. Um, but that's not what the Lord is calling us to, right? Especially, if, you know, we talked about last week and, and we've really talked about it all year long. The promised land is a picture for us of the victory we have in Jesus Christ. And they are, they are living in the land of victory and they're in bondage. We can be fully saved. We can be Christians on our way to heaven and we can be living in bondage until the day we die. And that is not what the Lord created us for. And so the, the children of Israel get themselves in this position. And uh, chapter three, verse 15, but, and it, it's an encouraging one this time, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. God always likes using lefties. I'm just, it's, um, at least every once in a while. And so, the, anyway, so we get the story of, Eglon, of Ehud, and we're not going to go through the whole story just because we don't have time. But Ehud is raised up as a deliverer by the Lord. And so he takes, basically, he gets kind of drafted by the Israelites to be the guy who takes the tribute to, the, uh, to Aegon, the king of Moab. So he takes the tribute. He's a left-handed guy. And it's an important detail in the story because before he goes... He makes himself an 18-inch knife, and he straps it to his right side because he's a lefty. And lefties, as particularly in the ancient world, being left-handed was weird. There was a lot of stigma associated with it. And so evidently, the guards weren't used to thinking through left-handed people. And so however they searched him, they searched him as if he was a right-handed guy. So he slipped through security uh, with an 18-inch knife in his, in his, you know, strapped to his leg. People have been trying to slip knives through security for a long, long time. And he gets there, he drops off the tribute, he says, all right, there's the tribute money, I have a special message for you, king, um, but it's classified. And the king says, okay, everybody else leave the room. And so everybody else leaves the room. 
And Ehud walks up to the king. He says, I've got a secret message for you. And it's from God. And he whips out his 18-inch knife and he shoves it up Aegon's stomach. And we get this nice little detail that Aegon is a very fat man. It's right there in the scripture. Uh, and there's this, it's, kind of, it's phrased kind of nicely. Verse 22, the handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. Isn't that beautiful writing? Like that's, that's, you know, that's just, I mean, that's, that's been my favorite Bible story since I was six years old. I just love that picture, right? You mean, it just, I just, I don't know. I always liked the idea of leaving the knife in there. That just struck me as like, it's not like it went in and came out. It's like the dude was so stinking fat that he shoves it all the way in and doesn't even bother reaching in to pull it out. So he then escapes. Aegon's servants are standing outside. The door's locked. It's kind of quiet in there. They decide, it's right here in the text, they think he's going to the bathroom, and so they wait until they get embarrassed, um, like, you know, poor king's got, having a problem, and so they open the door, unlock it, king's dead, assassin escaped. Ehud delivers Israel. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the judges, right? But we see this idea that the Lord is always looking to raise up an individual, and the Lord raised up Ehud. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, uh, who reigned in Hatzor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So they get... You know, cycles on repeat, okay? The people are refusing to walk in the victory that the Lord offered them. And so, once again, you get delivered, and you walk in disobedience. And where does disobedience lead you? It leads you back into, uh, back into bondage, right? And so, they cry out again. They're getting oppressed by this guy who has 900 chariots. Now, if you remember, and as the Israelites should have remembered, they came up against an army that had chariots before, right? The Egyptians had an army of chariots, and all the Israelites had to do was just walk through the Red Sea, and the Lord took care of all the chariots. The Lord made the chariot wheels fall off. So chariots shouldn't be a problem for people living in victory. But if you're living in bondage to sin, if you're, if you're refusing to walk in victory, it's a major problem. And so it says he oppressed them harshly for 20 years. And so the Lord raised up another judge. This time it's a woman named Deborah. And uh, Deborah receives the call from the Lord. She gives... She, summons this guy Barak and says, all right, Barak, the Lord has called you to go out and lead the people in war. And Barak, being the bold, you know, macho guy that he is, says, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. I need a woman to have my back. And so she said, I'll go with you. But nevertheless, the honor will not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So we, see, we do see this, as we're going through Judges, we see this interesting pattern over and over that is, the Lord will use, the Lord was happy to use people. The Lord does not use people because they're qualified. The Lord uses people because he uses people and because he's gracious enough to use us. But the story of the scriptures is not about perfect people getting used by the Lord. It's about a lot of messed up people getting used by the Lord. And so we see here, this guy Barak, the Lord is calling him to be a general over the nation of Israel. He says, I am not going unless it's on my terms. And interestingly, as very often happens, the Lord complies. The Lord says, you know what? Okay. But 
you're going to miss out on the fullness of the reward, right? Barak, I fully believe, would have had the honor of, of killing this general. And, and, it really, and especially in that cultural sense, that would have been a very significant honor. That would have brought him into a place of authority. And the Lord says, you know what? Fine, I will give you the victory, but I'm not going to give you that honor. And so Barak goes to war. Uh, Deborah goes with him. They defeat the army, and this general, Sisera, he runs off. He abandons his troops, and he runs off on foot. And he, he goes to the tent of this guy who was friendly to his nation. The guy's gone, but his wife's home. Um, and he says, hey, uh, can you kind of cover for me just until the heat's off? She says, no problem. He says, you got any water to drink? She says, I got something better than water. I got warm milk. He says, great, thanks. She says, are you tired? Here's a blanket. He lays down. He says, if anybody comes to the tent, you tell them there's nobody here. She says, you got it. Don't worry. He goes to sleep. She grabs a tent peg and a hammer and stakes him to the ground right through the temple, right? He has just... There's so many great jokes you can make out of that about getting the point, but I won't. Um, but Sisera dies because the Lord gave the honor to a woman, right? And incidentally, we do see the scriptures give high honor to women, and the Lord is not a chauvinist. The Lord's happy to use a man or a woman or whoever's there who's got the, you know, whoever's closest with a tent stake, he'll use you. And so that's Deborah. Um, but, we, but we do see a little bit of a tragedy here, and that is that Barak missed the opportunity because of an unwillingness to trust the Lord. And, and we're going to see that over and over you know, through the scriptures. We see people miss opportunities, and it's, it's just a principle that we live with. It's a principle that we need to learn. And the Lord's gracious. The Lord, uh, you know, the Lord can restore those opportunities we've missed in the past, but that is not justification for choosing to miss them as they come, right? Uh, the Lord wants to do things in our lives. The Lord wants to be glorified through our lives. He doesn't want to have to work around us. Um, he will. He's God. He'll get his will done one way or the other. Um, he will work around us if we stand in the way. But it's a lot more effective and it's a lot more fruitful and it's a lot more rewarding to just be the person who says, okay, I'll go. And so that's, the, that's Deborah as a judge. Um, and then we go on. There's a couple others. Parenthetically, um, if you want to learn all the judges, kind of like learning the books of the Bible, find a song, okay? There's, there's 12 judges. It's pretty quick. There's a song that's stupid as all get out on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, if you Google the Bentley Brothers, Book of Judges, watch it three times. You'll be able to name every judge in the Book of Judges. It'll be stuck in your head all week. Um, but you'll learn the judges. And so, if, as you know, sometimes the stupid ways are the most effective ways. So if you want to learn all the judges in order, look up the Bentley brothers. Um, but anyways, so we're going to move on. After Deborah, you've got a couple others. And then we find ourselves with the judge Gideon. Gideon is an interesting one um, because he's, he comes from this very inferior family. He comes from an inferior social status. And the Lord shows up and says, hey, Hey there, mighty man of valor. The Lord's ready to use you. And Gideon says, I think you've got the wrong guy. And the Lord says, no, no, no. I'm, I'm actually, I'm God. I'm, I'm pretty positive I got the right guy. And Gideon says, okay. And, and we see Gideon uh, get used by the Lord. But we also see Gideon's a fascinating character. And, and we're going to, kind of the last two guys we're going to look at tonight are really interesting because they're used by the Lord in a powerful way. Gideon winds up with an army of 300 men. 
and he defeats an army of 120,000 men. All right, Gideon's 300 guys defeat 120,000 men. Now, that's called being used by the Lord, right? That, that's not a math equation that you can plot out that works, okay? Gideon, but, um, but what we see with Gideon and what we'll see in just a second with Samson is we see wasted potential. Gideon is a guy who, you know, he actually gets to see um, when the Lord comes to him, the Lord comes to him in the flesh, actually. It's an appearance of Jesus Christ before Jesus was born. Uh, and it happens a couple times in the Old Testament. Gideon was one of the people who got to see that. Um, Gideon had an interaction with the Lord in a way that most of us, even to this day, can't imagine. But what we see is Gideon consistently doubts the Lord's word, even when it's given very clearly. He doesn't, he doesn't ask for clarification. He says, no, God, I know what you said, but I want you to verify it one more time because I'm unwilling to act unless you verify it the way I want. And the Lord, it wasn't like, hey, I don't understand. It was like, no, I understand, and I want you to verify it on my terms. Gideon uh, takes some of the glory. Uh, he tells them, when you guys, he tells his army, when you guys charge, you're going to yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. Um, which, which is, A, stupid, but it's also incredibly dangerous, right? To, to associate yourself on that kind of level is super dangerous, right? The Lord says, I will not share my glory with another. The Lord takes his name very seriously, and it is standing on very risky ground to associate yourself as a counterpart to God. But Gideon does that. He does it, and, he's, and <clears throat> in case we miss it, the text specifies it twice. Gideon winds up, he goes on later in life to make an idol that the people worship. And so Gideon is this guy who's used by the Lord in a mighty way, but he's really a, uh, he's really in a lot of ways a wasted life. Gideon has, has so much potential, but he wastes it in so many ways. And we say, wow, that's kind of depressing. Let's go up on a high note. So let's move to Samson. Samson um, is perhaps the greatest single wasted life in the scriptures. There is, there's really, uh, I was trying to think through it today. I don't know if you could argue that there's a person who had more potential who wasted more of it. Uh, I mean, Samson, so interestingly, Samson's parents were unable to have children. Samson's parents were two of the other people who got to see an appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus came down to earth to tell Samson's parents, you're going to have a son and I'm going to use him to deliver my people. Because once again, they're in this cycle, right? They've been walking in disobedience. So now they're in bondage. They're in defeat. And the Lord says, and now they're getting desperate. And the Lord says, I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to use your son. You've never been able to have children. I'm going to work a miracle right now. Your son is a miracle by the very fact of his existence. Samson is dedicated to the Lord from before he's even born. And Samson then proceeds to waste his entire life. Um, Samson's entire life is driven by his lusts. Uh, every time you see Samson do something, there's always a woman involved. There's always uh, just a complete disregard for whatever the Lord's doing. But what's interesting, what's super interesting, is that Samson is also simultaneously one of the most used people in the scriptures by the Lord. We're told um, four different times that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Okay, in 
Chapter 13, verse 25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Chapter 15, 14, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Chapter 14, verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Chapter 15, verse 14. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. When we think of what we want the Lord to do with our lives, sometimes we think... Uh, we can get very close to the right idea, but still be wrong. Sometimes we think, I want to be used by God. I want, to be, I want to have the Spirit of God move mightily in my life. And that's not a bad desire, but that is not the ultimate desire. Think of it this way. Um, I was reading a thing a couple weeks ago, and a guy made an interesting point. He said, if you were to tell the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and use as few characters as possible, who would you have? Like, who is absolutely essential to the story of the crucifixion? Well, okay, so you have Jesus. All right, that's okay. But in terms of, like, people who were used by God, you've got Mary, because technically, if you didn't have Mary, you wouldn't have had Jesus. So without going too far down that road, uh, you've got Mary. And then who do you have? You've got Judas. You've got Pilate. You've got... Ah, you've got Caesar who took away the Jews' right to stone people, so they've got to get him crucified. You've got uh, Caiaphas, the high priest. You could just about tell the entire crucifixion and resurrection story with all those guys. You don't have to mention any of the other 11 disciples. You don't really have to mention anybody else. So, but all those guys were used by God. God used them to accomplish his will. So the desire to be used by God is not a bad desire, but in and of itself it's insufficient. Because God did not create us to be used by him. He created us to know him. He created us to have a relationship with him on a personal level. And along the way, he would like to work through us. Yes. But that is never the primary objective. And if we lose sight of that, we wind up uh, with Samson's and Gideon's. Right? We wind up with people who are, oh, they're used by the Lord. Yeah, but did they know the Lord? Well... You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting question. They might have known all about the Lord. Um, you know, I really, I really honestly have no idea where Gideon and Samson are eternally. And they were both used by God. That's great. But don't be used by God without knowing God. The Lord is, the Lord is happy to use you. That's great. But the Lord is interested in you knowing him. You were, not, you were created for fellowship with God. That's really, in a lot of ways what we get to see sort of by, what is it, by association, by proxy or whatever, through the book of Judges. We get to see, yeah, being used by the Lord is great. Knowing the Lord is better. The Lord is interested in that personal element. And so uh, then we sort of, that's kind of, you know, we said there's really, that's part two of Judges, is going through the Judges. And then part three, um, which we're going to significantly gloss over, is sort of just an overview of, if you wanted a snapshot of exactly how depraved Israel is when we talk about being depraved, here's what you're looking at. And it's chapter 17 through 21. It's pretty darn depraved. Um, that's pretty much all you need to know. Um, so you can go home and read it to yourself. Uh, if you're reading it to your kids, I'd read it through first before you read it out loud. Um, you laugh, but it's, I'm dead serious. Um, so that's, so we, but we, it's not... We just see the depravity of Israel. And then we, we wrap up the book of Judges with, again, that verse, that, that summary of the entire book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the story of defeat, right? Joshua is all about walking in victory in the promised land. Judges is all about walking in defeat, even 
when we should be walking in victory. Judges is really, a, it's a very tragic book, but it's super relevant, and it's full of warnings, it's full of applications. Um, there's a ton of it, there's a ton of value in it for us. Okay, but lastly, as we're going through these books, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, we're trying to always say, okay, where is Jesus Christ? Right, we're going through the Old Testament. Jesus said, you know, these are they which testify of me. He said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we understand that the Old Testament testifies of Jesus. So where is it in the book of Judges? Because there's no actual specific prophecy in the book of Judges where the Lord says, hey, I'm going to send a Messiah and he's going to you know, do whatever. Um, but as you look at it in a lot of ways, the whole book is pointing to it in a sense because the whole book is about heroes and deliverance. The whole book is about humans' need to be delivered by someone higher than themselves. And if you think about it, as humans, we're wired with this intrinsically. We know as humans, if you took away everything culturally, if you took away everything we understand from what we've learned and been taught, we still understand the idea of heroes. And we still see this today. Uh, even in a world that's desperate to deny any reality or existence of God, we have heroes. We tell them in our stories, we put them in our songs, we put them in our cultural narrative. Okay, political candidates run as heroes. We watch movies that are about heroes. If we don't like, if heroes aren't significant enough, we make them super heroes, right? We're desperate to find heroes because we understand that there are forces at play that are bigger than us. We understand that we need something bigger than straight up humanity to get us out of our problem. Okay, and so and we'll, you know, we'll warp the stories a little bit and we'll turn it into whatever, medical injections that can turn us into whatever, or, you know, genetic mutations, whatever. But, but we understand a need for heroes. And, and every human being does. Every culture has stories about heroes. We all understand this. And the book of Judges is all about heroes. It's about these guys who rise up and deliver Israel. But each one can only take it so far, right? They can deliver Israel, kind of. They can deliver Israel from their immediate physical need, but they can't deliver Israel from, their, from its sin. They can't give Israel a lasting relationship with the Lord that's going to last beyond when they die. Consistently, right? Ehud dies, the people sin. Deborah dies, the people sin. Gideon dies, the people sin. All these, it's, you know, they died. They, and, and so heroes have risen up throughout time and throughout history to deliver people from various problems and various forms of oppression. But there's a difference between a hero that can deliver you and a hero that can transform you. There's a difference between um, a hero who can deliver us and a hero who can deliver us and make us holy, right? Israel needed a deliverer. And the Lord raised up people, the Lord was using people, but simultaneously in the book of Judges, all these guys are pointing towards a greater picture, which is that a real hero is coming. The real hero is coming. And for us, as we look back, we say, the real hero has come. Right? We look at you know, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You've been delivered. And you haven't been delivered so you can continue to walk in sin. You haven't been delivered so you can continue to walk in bondage and continue to fail to walk in victory. You've been delivered so that now you are a new creation. You're becoming something. You're being transformed. That's what the entire New Testament, that's what the entire scriptures are about. As we're on the path of knowing God, we get to understand. We still stumble, we still struggle, but we can understand at the same time, like John says, it's not quite clear yet what we're gonna be, but it's clear what we're becoming. We're becoming holy because we've been delivered. We're still being, you know, the gospel's an active truth. 
Okay, yes, we've been saved, we've been delivered. Simultaneously, we're being saved and we're being delivered. And they happen side by side, and that's, and that's a great thing. Okay, yes, we're saved to heaven. Yes, we're also saved for righteousness. We're saved for the ability to know the Lord here on earth, to live a life that conforms to his word. So the book of Judges is all about, it's, a, it's warnings about walking in bondage. It's warnings about sin. Simultaneously, though, it's hope for the future. It's hope that the hero is coming. And we live with that hope today. We still live with the idea and the expectancy that our hero has come, but he's also coming again, right? He's still on his way. And we are living with that hope because of what he did, okay? That's the book of Judges. Next week's Ruth, if Judges was all depressing, Ruth is like this super beautiful little asterisk uh, right on the end of the book of Judges to say, hey, uh, it was awful, but God was still doing great things. And so Ruth is this really awesome little story that's stuck right in the middle of the time of the Judges. But uh, So read it ahead. It's short. You can read it next week uh, to kind of get a feel for what's coming. But anyways, that's Judges. So God, we thank you for your word. We do pray that, uh, that you'd help us to learn the lessons and, the, and to heed the warnings that you've put in there for us. I pray that it that you would help us to know you, God, that your word would be uh, not just a textbook, not just a, a means of information, but that it really would be a means of communication, that we would understand that you have written it down for us so that we can actually know you, so that we can interface with you, so that we can dialogue and discuss things, and that we can draw closer to you and approach your presence. God, I pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, with all of your power. Help us to know you. So have your way with us. Go before us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.